Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins, recording still from my home in Brooklyn. But what you're about to hear was recorded back when you could still gather in one room eight amazing people around three microphones and take on some really big questions. And those are questions about racial justice and the long reach of criminalization that uh, have only gotten more urgent in the time since this conversation took place. For the past three years, the Center for Court Innovation has been able to run a really remarkable project in five Brooklyn high schools. All five are overwhelmingly black, and all five had some of the highest suspension rates in New York City. And I should say the music you're listening to right now comes from a student at one of those schools. And I'll tell you more about the artist Annie London at the end of the show. So in those five schools, the Center set up sort of restorative justice outposts. And over the three years of the program, the number of incidents reported by the schools plummeted, as did suspensions. And that goes a long way toward interrupting what's called the school-to-prison pipeline. But the program had bigger ambitions. Restorative justice, or RJ, as people doing the work call it, is about accountability and repairing harm. So what about accountability for the system that has produced these underserved and essentially segregated schools, and then punish the kids for reacting to that neglect? The work was also motivated by a feeling that, with all the buzz over restorative justice these days, its system-overturning indigenous spirit was being lost, much as the radical king is often conveniently forgotten on MLK Day. For black Americans, just what is restorative justice actually restoring? Before we talked about restorative justice as racial justice, Erica Wright, one of the team, told me she had written a poem the night before. pretty much staggered everyone in the room. It's three minutes long. Uh, Let's listen to that first, and then I'll introduce you to the rest of the group. Who would tell the story of the children who didn't belong? Whose schools were underfunded because they were raised on the wrong side of town and the wrong homes bearing the mark of a dark skin tone? Who would tell the story of the children who were forgotten while they were still in our faces, the throwaways who never stood a chance in this life race unless they were being chased with a baton, a ball, or a mic in hand? On display, poor colored children willing to entertain while the rest would be displaced in the pipeline to prison. The poverty of being colored and poor means that you would never be worth more than the smiles that you can put on our faces. Wildlings, totally deprived of any humanity, so when they don't succeed, they become the epitome of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Who? We'll tell the story of the children who come out of the wilderness, a.k.a. ghettos, the hood, where nothing that ever comes out of it is good, who were never told that they could be good, so excellence was out of the window, born widows to life before they even had a chance to live. The livelihood was this country's deconstruction of a fighting chance for people of their peculiar hue. When history taught you that you're three-fourths of a man, the laws may have changed, but not the hearts of men who control these oppressive systems. Who? will tell the story of my kid, 16, pregnant alone and already a mother to the children of both her parents' homes. Who will tell the story of my kid with a baby and a family history of rape when no one cares how many times their innocence are taken away? Who will tell the story of my kid, not yet a man when all his hope was gone alone with his father and when no one else bothered to understand the root of his aggression? Colored boy don't get depression. Past four, colored boy don't get childhood. Colored boy don't get misunderstood. Colored boy get misunderstood, sad stairs, clutch purse, feelings hurt, systematic news to ensure he doesn't allow his rage to come loose.
loose message in the bottleneck of this neighborhood to stay in its place. For to desire more is a disgrace to the crabs in the barrel. Never mind in the fact that a barrel isn't the crab's natural habitat, but he didn't invent that. So in their attempt to get free, the crabs are blindly reaching up and getting stuck on one another, but nobody tells the story. ADHD, ODD, IEP, every day there's a new disability, but who tells the story of the children deprived of opportunity, all packed in dilapidated school buildings, but no worry because they're already used to neighborhood and ruins, so school is just an extension of that when you're brown and black, and most of your teachers lack any sense of cultural competency, not enough experience yet to qualify to teach on the other side of the city where opportunities and even books flow plenty, folk. And the kids have the complexion deemed worthy of protection. So even when they're wrong, they were just misdirected. Affluenza means they get to come home scot clean where our children are fed to the prison industrial complex for the exact same things. And these are those stories that are always told so that fear mongering of colored children is never politically undersold. So who? tells the story of the children, descendants of the forgotten, enslaved, hands engraved in sugarcane, tobacco, and cotton, short-lived reconstructed freedom, black codes, Jim Crow's desegregation discrimination, a divided nation with no rights regardless of how civil could rewrite their wrongs, our children who show up every day, most days, some days, are not at all, our children, both those who prevail and fail, not because the system is broke, but because it was designed without them in mind, our children who need us to stand up and show up all the way, not half days when we feel like it, our children to be and discarded and we wonder why they're black hearted when this world never opened theirs to them in the first place. No one needs to tell the story of the children. We must live it with them and empower them to rewrite their own. But in this story, they are no longer the villains. Wow, thank you. That was the poet Erica Wright. Along with Erica, you're also going to hear from Erica Sasson, who oversaw the Restorative Justice in Schools project, Kelsey Sayers, Quayla Hugh, Mishkael Setut, Xavier Cornejo, Maxine Getz, and Omar Cyril. Like the project itself, this conversation was a collective effort, so it's not always going to be possible to know who's talking, and I should say there is some language in here that some people might find offensive. I started the conversation by asking Kelsey, who managed daily operations, to give an overview of the schools and of the approach to the work. So our five schools would be classified as underserved schools, so really high needs population. A lot of our schools had a lot of students with high levels of IEPs, so students who need additional support in order to academically thrive in a standard school. Our schools were filled with high levels of immigrant populations, so the communities that we worked in were communities that were largely Caribbean-American communities, so a lot of first-generation kids from the Caribbean. And with that, we found that our students often were living with people who weren't their birth parents, so they may have been sent to this country and they're living with an aunt, a cousin, a friend, so not your traditional family environment. So our students often lack the kind of support that you would see in a standard family home just because of the transient nature in which they were sent to this country. Um, so in addition to that, these are schools who don't have the appropriate number of students to properly run a school. So most of our schools didn't have a social worker. We didn't have many guidance counselors. There weren't a lot of additional services that would be needed for the population that I just described. And, and you've got some of these schools are like a poverty level approaching 90%. and Right, so we have schools where like, Overwhelmingly, our kids qualify for free school lunch. In addition to that, because these kind of underserved schools and underfunded schools, 
we also had issues in terms of staffing. So we these are schools with high teacher turnover. So, you know, you come to school one year and 50% of the teachers that were here your first year of high school are gone your second year. And with that said, because you have high turnover and you're underfunded, you have a lot of burnout for teachers. Then you have older teachers who are just like on their way out and they've been educators for 25 years and they're exhausted from this experience and they're exhausted from working in underserved schools and they don't really have much to offer. There was a lack of adults in the building who I think had the capacity to provide the kind of support this particular population needs. And then there's also, I mean, a a problem with how, quote unquote, misbehavior is responded to, right? These were, as I understand it, all schools that, these were all schools that had uh, elevated suspension rates, right? Right. So one of the reasons why these five schools were identified for our intervention was that they were amongst some of the highest suspending schools in New York City. In working in the schools, we understand where that suspension came from. You're underserved, you're understaffed, you're under-resourced. When a child is acting out and you don't have the capacity, the training, or the time to deal with it, then your result is that they have to leave the school community because I can't deal with them, I don't know how to deal with them, I don't have the resources to deal with them. So the best thing to do is to give them time away. Which can, though, I mean, in the same way that jail is a response to an offense can make the prior behavior worse, suspension often. Exactly, because you're not dealing with the core concerns for why this young person is acting out because you feel like even if you ask why, one, you think you know why because I think some of our schools felt some of our kids were just inherently bad and they didn't have anything else to offer but this sort of misbehavior. Or if you ask the question, there's nothing I can actually do about it, so there's no reason for me to ask a question that I can't actually solve. So you guys have now been in these schools for close to three years. Can we talk about like how you went about trying to, I guess, change the culture a, a little bit, if, if, if that's the word? I was struck when I visited you guys by how much it just was so apparent that you were all very embedded in the schools in which you were operating in. I mean, when I walk the halls with you guys, it's, you know, talking to all the students, them coming up to you, the teachers coming up to you, the the principal coming up to you and saying, hey, I want to flag this for you. And so was that a a kind of initial strategy of, of really showing, hey, we're here, we're here to stay and getting embedded? The approach was a threefold approach for our project. It was community building, intervention, and investment. So when I say community building, we use the restorative process of circles to build community in the schools. So in each of our schools, there was an advisory program that was developed, which was a class in which it was non-academic, where kids could sit in circle and build community with each other and build community by talking about their lived experiences, sharing their stories and a place to really just be themselves without the pressure of a standard academic environment. In addition to the circles that took place in advisory, we created a bunch of voluntary spaces, which were clubs that included girls group and men in color and the uh, Gender and Sexuality Alliance and a variety of just different voluntary spaces where young people could be themselves and build community with each other. And then in addition to building community with young people, we also thought it was important for the adults to build community with each other. Sometimes that was in professional development. Sometimes that was a happy hour that we organized. Sometimes that was an event that we invited them to on the weekend just so that they could build community with each other. In terms of intervention, when a harm actually occurred in the community or when somebody was in need, then we wanted to provide the support to kind of focus on healing and give the individuals who were experiencing this harm or this trouble the ability to kind of process that in what was often a restorative process. Sometimes it was just a conversation. Sometimes it was a mediation using a variety of different skills. And then the third focus of the project was just investment. So we came in with capital, something that the school didn't have. 
So with that capital, we were able to host carnivals and pep rallies and take the kids on trips and provide them with food and parties and all of these things that were unavailable to them because they went to underserved schools. You know, when I was there, uh, the day I was there, one word I heard uh, more than once was grace. How is that a, a concept, do we think, that we're trying to sort of introduce into, into, I guess, the stories that people are telling themselves about themselves? Yeah, um, so I'll speak on that. Uh, this is Xavier. I think grace plays, like, a huge role in just, like, how we offer, like, forgiveness to students in ways that, like, systems have just not given them time and time again, right? There, grace, to me, is, like, taking into account everything that you've lived and are living through and how that factors into the decisions you make. Recognize that, like, you're valid to make mistakes. Like, it's okay for you to make mistakes when, you know, let's say you threw a pencil at a kid or you said something out of turn, like your anger took over you. Like, we all do that. We understand you as, like, a human being, as a teenager. And so when we offer students that grace, it's like a way of just recognizing your human capacity to learn. I think, oh, this is Maxine. I think to add on to that, Another part of it is that when the teachers are allowed to just like feel isolated and feel shame, they then act harmfully towards the kids and teachers mess up all the time. And if they're just like told that it's okay and like worked with through whatever they messed up on and given that grace, I think it's so much easier for them to be like, I'm human. I can apologize to this kid. I can apologize to my co-teacher or whatever. I can apologize to myself for like falling short in that moment. And you see that sometimes with like specific teachers or students who for whatever reason, have, like, learned how to treat themselves more kindly, are way more able to, like, treat each other with that. Like, yesterday I encountered two kids who were just talking so openly about, like, mental health struggles and, like, therapy and all that and giving themselves, like, the grace to be, like, I've experienced depression. And, like, publicly with, like, a whole big group of, like, 15 kids or something, they're like, I've experienced depression. This is how I kind of deal with it. This is what I've been taught to deal with it in a way that, like, they were letting themselves be broken And I think that to be able to do that, someone had to have, like, really taught them how to do that. And we don't teach them how to do that ever. And I think that that's, like, an important part of the, like, grace element of it is, like, how they can model that for themselves and each other and how without that they don't know how to, like, be kind to each other at all or themselves. I think that a lot of people who go into this work have this idea that the power holder is the people with the titles. So, like, the principal, assistant principal. And... The first thing that I realized was the people who the children talked to and respect were the people who were most disrespected by the established hierarchy in the school. So school safety agents, the paras, the people who serve them food, the custodians, those were the people who were able to do things and move things and tell you what's going on with X kid because they were the closest to the kids. But those were the people who the grantees completely neglected in identifying as stakeholders, right? And so when you come into these communities and you try to learn, as opposed to say you're doing this wrong and here's how you should be doing it, I think it opens you up and opens up the people that you're working with to actually be receptive to what you have to say. And so I think our approach on day one, or at least I can say speak for myself, my approach on day one was literally asking, what do you need? How can I help? And for the first year and a half, that was literally just picking up trash in the cafeteria. Something that none of the teachers wanted to do, something that none of the students wanted to do, but somebody needed to pick up trash in the cafeteria. And that action of doing the thing that nobody else wants to do, doing the thing that needs to be done, I think is at the heart of what we are doing, which is like paying attention to the actual human beings in front of us and what they need in that moment and long term. 
Well, it's a demonstration of commitment, too, right? It's communicating that message that we're here, we're going to do the shit work that nobody else wants to do if that's what needs to be done. Yeah, I think that, and I also think that it's a demonstration of humility in a really important way. Um, when we started this project, Kelsey said something over and over that really grained into my head, which was, we're guests in this house. This is not our house. This is not our school. We cannot just walk into these people's offices and say, you have to do this this way, and you're racist, and you're bad, and you're suspending too many kids, because in reality, you don't know what's going on in the house. You just got there. You are a guest. Um, and I think that that philosophy and that orientation to focus on the needs of the real people on the ground was really helpful in us getting started and building the community and ingraining ourselves into the pre-existing structure. I think also on that point, you asked about how we went about changing culture. Often we forget like these schools aren't all bad. Like it's not all terrible. There are lots of people who are working very hard to build culture. And so I think something we often talk about on the team is like, what is that tipping point of the teachers or the staff in general that are like working to build a positive culture, but it's just one person here or two people here. What we did, much like Mitch is saying, is just like look for where we can help and support so that there is enough energy behind it so that other people start who like maybe started with that energy and don't have it anymore, like tap back in to like do all the good stuff for the school. Could we talk a little bit just so that people have like a kind of concrete sense of what some aspect of the work looks like? Because the work you're doing is not just about conflict resolution, for example. It's not just about finding an alternate, an alternative to suspensions. But, but could we talk a bit about, you know, maybe a hypothetical or anonymized scenario which in the past might have been responded to with a suspension with all the attendant harms that we know about um, and then what this what a kind of alternative more restorative response actually looks like in practice um i would say so specifically in the second year of the program my office essentially kind of became like a therapeutic office for a lot of kids it got to a point to where when kids were on the verge of if they had reached their peak, maybe they got into an altercation with the teacher or something happened at home and they brought it to school with them or they got into something with one of their friends. Like a lot of times our offices were like the first places that they would go to to say, let me tell you, you know, the kids, they say, let me put you on. And so where they like let you know, like everything what's happening with them, because a lot of the times what you see is that these kids don't really want to fight. They just want to be heard. They want to feel like someone is there for them. They want to feel like, okay, this thing happened to me and I need to tell somebody. But when they don't have people there to listen, then it comes out in a like violent or an aggressive manner. And so our offices became kind of like a safe space for them to come to say, these are all of the things that happened to me. And then we'll say, okay, do you want to talk to that person? Yeah, I'll talk to him. I'll talk to him. And so we were able to... We sit with them. I'll be like, okay, I'm going to put you in another office. Let me go pull this other student, have a conversation with this other student to get what their side of the story is, and then we could bring them together. And this is pre them, like, having a fight or even having a big altercation in the hallway or, like, anywhere in the school or even outside of the school. So a lot of the times we were able to get these situations before anything could even happen, but that was because we had built, like, a sense of community and a sense of trust with the kids. Like, they knew that, like, we were there for them and that what happened in our office, so long as, like, it's not anything harmful, like, it wasn't going to leave there. And in a lot of spaces in their life, that was not, like, a, a real situation. Even, like, at home, a lot of the kids, a lot of my students in particular, 
did not feel like they could talk to their parents or whoever the guardian was that they lived with. And so we kind of, you know, we become like these pseudo parents and like older siblings and, you know, like these like guardians essentially for these kids. And so that was kind of like a space that we like provided them outside of like doing mediations or like harm circles, anything of that sort. And to add to that, um, I think another way that we did that, that was like on an individual level, but at the community scale, um, we just amplified the efforts, like Quayla was saying earlier, we amplified the efforts that teachers were making to build positive community already. And the second year we had a group of teachers who were veterans who wanted to do something fun for the students on the day before break, and they called it Sports Fest, and it was like uh, dividing the school into 9th and 12th versus 10th and 11th, and playing basketball and having it be a competition. And we were like, yes, let's do it. What do you need? And it turns out that what they needed was tug-of-war rope and hacky sacks and potato sacks for the kids to do potato sack races. And Sports Fest has become like a major part of the school culture. Kids look forward to it. It's like a recurring thing, and they've increased the times that they do it. And it's also boosted attendance. And it's the kind of thing that, like, if you're only looking at suspension numbers, you're never going to think about how Sports Fest will prevent fights. Sports Fest will encourage kids to come to school. And you don't have to have it wait till someone does something. Um, just to highlight that point, what we're talking about, obviously, you can um, hear it in here, is, it's a, is harm reduction in a, in a big, comprehensive, holistic way. And I want to just talk about some of the numbers that kind of show that. So in one of our schools, the year before we got there, um, there were 166 incidents and 115 suspensions. And into our third year in that same school, there are 14 incidents and the same amount of suspensions, more or less. And so it's not just about the response, again, to harm. It's about deviating a huge amount of that harm and helping these students build a muscle. So a lot of the students you know, we'll say to Maxine, for example, if I don't talk to if I don't talk to you right now, I'm going to punch somebody, and that's for me gold on this project because it means that they have built that muscle to verbalize their feeling about it without actually taking the action. And once you have that happening, you know, someone someone on this team is going to talk them out of it in some way and talk them about something else and help them move forward from it. But we really want that's the social emotional learning that doesn't really see, uh, seem to happen in these environments, and that's how you get the huge re- reduction in uh, incidents and suspensions. One of the more exciting things that we'll see is, um, and this actually happened with a couple of times, where we'll walk into a room and you'll see kids in a circle, and they're just doing their own circle process, and we're kind of like, okay, we'll let's step out, you know, we'll see how they get it done. Um, there are times we allow students to, it goes back into having students have equity in, in the process just as much as we do. Sometimes we'll not only have conversations in the office, we'll kind of have conversations in the hallway, we kind of reposition ourselves to kind of uh, become smaller and allow the students to become bigger, therefore we get more information, they become more comfortable, and they feel like they can really come to us and share a number of details. And you know, they have their pride as well, we, just like every, anybody else, but when you, you, know, you don't really have enough money to purchase a bacon, egg, and cheese, you don't have um, enough to be able to go to the school store, and you're gonna go through a nine hour day and sit through eight to seven classes where you're being lectured at. It's not It's not easy. You could ask anybody on the team if they didn't have their breakfast or their coffee, how they would react to certain <laughs> stressful situations. <laughs> there were probably tons of suspensions, but in this case, firings. <laughs> and so it, it is coming with that understanding and realizing like I was 15 at one point, and this is exactly, I'll do the same thing that they would. But now that I do know certain things, that I am older, I can be able to give some game, be able to drop some gems for them. 
so to pick up maybe on, on the holistic aspect of restorative justice that Erica was talking about, I, I doubt there was a moment for any of you in this room where you were in one of the schools and suddenly realized, hey, what we're doing in here is actually racial justice. But I'm, I'm wondering in what ways doing this work in the schools made the link between restorative justice and racial justice and the link between what students are bringing in from the outside world and into the school started to make those links stronger or, or more pertinent for you. I think when we think, this is Kelsey, that when we think about these young people and the things that they face inside of school and outside of school, it's directly linked to kind of the history of racism in this country. So to say that we're going to come into these schools and we're going to support these young people and we're going to invest in them, to me, is inherently racial justice work. These are black and brown kids who are suffering the consequences of a history of racism within this country and within the larger world. Because we do have kids, a lot of our kids, their roots aren't in America, but the racism experienced by people of color in America is not any different than what they experienced back home in their countries. So I think for me, in thinking about doing racial justice work, I think it is providing these young people with the space to heal with traumas that are beyond them, that are in their bloodlines, that are things that were beyond their lived experience here. And I think particularly in our schools, in addition to like wanting to promote positive school culture and wanting to reduce discipline, I found myself doing this work as wanting to give kids the skills to be better and to be better beyond the academic environment, but to be better for themselves and their families and the families they haven't had already. So being able to build these social-emotional skills with these young people, I think is inherently racial justice work for these black and brown kids in which investments like this aren't usually made in their communities. So something that probably like a year and a half into doing this work, I was really kind of disgruntled with this idea of restorative justice, like I really didn't quite understand still what it was. And for me, um, I didn't understand it because in this country, the history of black people in this country has always been tied to like oppression. And so my thing was like, if black people in this country, the history of its slavery, and you go from slavery to like the reconstruction era and black codes and Jim Crow and all of these different things, what are we restoring to? America so, has never been America to me, right? I mean, I mean, uh, essentially. So thinking of this idea of like restorative justice and racial justice, for me, I feel like restorative justice to me is essentially kind of getting back to like humanity. And like Kelsey talked about it, Erica talked about like the social emotional learning that a lot of our kids, they don't get in the schools. And a lot of times they don't actually get in, in homes in their community. So I feel like for them to sit in circle and like there's no phones in the schools and you have to talk and have conversations. It's been one of those things to where it's like you see them actually be able to come alive and like be able to like see their own personalities and kind of create the people that they want to be. So I think for me, restorative justice and racial justice, it's creating something. There's nothing to restore here when, like I said, when we've always kind of been oppressed. And like, this is the story of the kids in our schools, they've always been oppressed. I had a class and this was actually like a class with students. It was a self-contained class. So all of the students in my class all had um, IEPs. So they had like an educational plan, favorite class. And these kids literally talked about everything under the sun. And I mean, first sexual experiences, everything and they would sell some things that me and the teacher would be like um I don't really like uh, uh um 
And but they were so comfortable with doing that with each other, and like the kids would laugh. And when they left that classroom, they knew that that like it, it wasn't leaving the classroom with them. And we can come back and have. We literally talked about everything. So the fact that these kids were so comfortable, and the teacher said that prior to like us doing circles in her classroom, she had some kids in her class who never she had them for four years. They never said a word in class for them to like go from that to be able to like share all of these things about themselves with each other. So like I said, I think for me it is just a matter of creating the type of community, the type of space that you want, even when everything around you is like contrary to that. I actually remember that Kelsey asked me that question of how do I see racial justice as a part of or in relation to restorative justice during the interview. And I remember telling her in that moment that I didn't think that you could extract the two from each other. Like, I don't think you can possibly be doing restorative justice work in the world or even America and not be doing racial healing work because the entire premise, as I understand it, of restorative justice is about connecting humanity. It's about this shared kinship. And the entire premise of racism is the opposite, right? And so if you are trying to build community, then you have to address the divisions within that community. And it just made me think a lot when we started this project, just about how racism was this distortion of community And what we were seeing in the schools was the impact of that distortion. When you tell people that they're not good enough, when you tell people that they're disconnected, when you tell them it's all me, mine, and whatever you got going on is your problem, the result is an environment where everybody has their knives out ready for the next person, right? Because if we're all in it on our own, then I got to get you before you get me. And I think that that piece of it, what the product of racism is, is violence, I think is often lost on people because they have these insular lives in these privileged bubbles where they get to discuss these issues from an arm's length. And so in their mind, restorative justice is fancy centerpiece and it's a specific sequence of questions and it's a specific sequence of seating. And it's not about the fact that there are no black people in this room because no black people feel welcome at Columbia University or no black people feel welcome in this particular space, right? Like for them, they're doing restorative justice because they're doing all the steps. And I feel like for me, it's really important that we push back against this sort of corporatization and the mainstreaming of indigenous practices that were originally for and by communities that were discarded. And so this idea that you can be doing restorative justice work with all white people or with all people who live in middle class backgrounds or with all people who went to college and with everybody there makes a certain amount of money, that's not restorative justice in my opinion. That is like, we wanna feel good about ourselves so we're talking. That's not the same thing. So in terms of doing something more than just feeling good because we're talking, I mean, it occurs to me, I mean, accountability is a big concept that you hear associated with restorative justice. but you guys don't just want this program to be about accountability for the young black and brown students that you're working with, right? We're really the most powerless actors in the system. You're trying to expand the notion of 
accountability, expand it into the staff, expand it into the administration, expand it into the Department uh, of, of Education, which, uh, again, I mean, we're talking about deep-seated problems in America, so daunting to say the least. But how do we go about expanding this notion of accountability? So I just want to put um, one piece on that, is that we don't really want to expand it to the staff and expand it to the administration. We want to start with the staff and start with the adults in the room, and it should be modeled then for the kids. Like that, That's all backwards, that we basically start and end with the kids, and we never get to the systems, and we never get to the power brokers. If it's not there first, then the rest of it is kind of meaningless. So I've come to this point where I've started to say, I don't want to hear about individual accountability anymore. I want to hear first about system accountability. I want to hear first about adults, adults in the room who are um, doing their share. And it's going to come from the kids as soon as the adults do it. But to start with the reverse and expand up is, in a way, a recipe for uh, for like a tweaking, right? For the same thing happening. For the same thing, I think so. Well, so how do you build a perch in order to sort of change the power relations? You know, you have a, a little foothold in these restorative justice in schools kind of classrooms you have in these in these high schools. How do you build the perch to be able to do that? I think that that's been a huge challenge of this project. I think that we have tried in lots of ways to bring in the adults in the building to kind of be accountable for their actions. And we've had some amounts of success with that. But I think it's incredibly difficult. I think it's for the adults in our schools who were excited for RJ work. They were excited that kids would finally take accountability for the things that they were doing. And I think that we've struggled with holding the adults accountable. And I think that we've been able to do it on an individual level. Maybe we'll convince a teacher to apologize about something or to acknowledge a harm that they caused. But I think we've not figured out how do you hold an entire system accountable. And I think part of it was partly the design of our project is, you know, this was a randomized study. So the five schools that we launched our project and did not decide to be there. So leadership in the school didn't decide that they believed in the principles of restorative justice and in the principles of holding everyone accountable. So I think that in an environment where a school is saying, I want to sign up for RJ, maybe we would have more success with adults taking that kind of accountability. With that said, I think we had some success on accountability in the fact that we acknowledge to the young people that it's not just you. This isn't just your fault. And I think for a lot of our young people, that's the first time that they heard, like, yeah. And they shouldn't have responded to you that way. Like, you shouldn't cuss at your teacher, but also, like, that was incredibly disrespectful, what happened to you in the classroom, and I want to acknowledge that. And I think even if we weren't able to hold each of those teachers accountable, those young people being able to hear that what they're feeling and what they're experiencing is real and it's wrong is a powerful form of accountability that they haven't had before. I also think it's a situation to where when you think about like school districts in general and you go to like the headquarters, there are no children in these buildings. They're a bunch of adults, a lot of them who are much older, which is perfectly fine. But in that sense, they never actually, a lot of times they actually don't get to go to the schools. And if they do, it's to do a walkthrough. When you do a walkthrough, all of the principals are going to make sure that everything is laid out so nice so that you can think that, like, we're doing this, like, awesome job. And a lot of the schools, they are doing really good jobs. But when you when you do that, you don't actually get to see 
what's happening and they are going to put their best students to go and, and talk to the superintendent or talk to the chancellor and of course they're going to be like oh my god everything is like rainbows and sunshines and like our little pots of gold and it's just like that's not real so when you have a system or when you have a group of people who run a system that's supposed to be for the betterment of children, but they don't actually interact with children, they don't actually work with these kids, you don't really know what they need. And so I think it's very difficult to change those systems because they hear about RJ or they hear about like a particular behavior plan or something. And it's like, oh yeah, we're going to give these to the schools. You guys are going to do that. But it's like, you don't actually know what these schools need. You've not actually spent time with these kids to see this is what they need. And then with that, you're not actually giving them the resources to be able to like implement these systems into the school. And so in order for us to do this and to have like people in the DOE really understand was like, they're literally gonna have to come and sit in these circles with these kids. They're gonna have to actually sit in circles with each other so that they know that like, wow, okay, this is what this is, this is what this is about. They hear, it's, 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 all, it's theoretical, it's a, a paper that they read or a study that they saw or heard about and now we're going to do it, but it's like, you, also, you have to, we're sort of just as something that you have to do yourself. And if you're not doing it, then how, you know, how do you know that it's, been done effectively, that it's been done right, that like, that it's actually been done. And so like I said, until that happens, who knows? Um, we've looked at how to create certain processes so that when individuals, because we do have individuals in these buildings that are really, really great, we can use them to be able to help us as well. And they tend to sometimes leave. And then that all that work we've done just leaves with them. And so we try to create something to where whenever we get somebody new, they can slide right in seamlessly. Therefore, we can kind of create that culture but not have it leave with all the people we created it with. And there are some schools that really want RJ, but they kind of look at it as another way to restore order amongst the students and not have accountability with it themselves. For example, we get sometimes we'll get teachers come into the room about a student, but it's more so can you fix the student? Can you look, look, talk to the student, and then we'll write them a pass, and you'll send them back. But I'm like, there's you could probably take a you could probably talk to them and figure out there's something you did because when we would talk to our students, this teacher um, kind of yelled at me when I was wasn't doing anything. This teacher cursed when I was uh, just asking another student for a pencil. It's just little simple things like that that teachers are not understanding and not taking the time to. Now, whether it's capacity, whether it's, you know, having 30 kids in your class at, you know, 8 a.m. and you're not able to really get any type of time or you're not able to have anybody help out and sometimes maybe something boils over, regardless, that needs to come out with that actual student because not only do you embarrass him in front of his friends or in front of his or her friends, but now we don't know that you said sorry. We don't know that this student also wants to be able to fix a relationship that they had prior to you. And when they send him to us, it's like, okay, we'll talk to the student, but now you go back to class, what is actually fixed is gonna happen over and over. I think that if we wanna to get to a place of system accountability, we have to start at the top. It cannot be a situation where the kid who throws a fit because their needs aren't being met is being punished, and the people who are systematically denying his parents a living wage, systematically denying his community of the resources that all the other communities get, they get to go home and say, well, you know, we gave them a restorative justice program, so like if they don't make it work, that's because they're just inherently deficient. And it completely misses the point that 
there is no possible way that you can begin to heal the harm that's going on in the schools without acknowledging the harm that's happening to the principals and to the teachers who work in the schools. You know, when I came in, I came in as a teacher, so I was really sensitive to teacher bashing because that's the number one go-to for the last 20 years. And so my approach was like, I'm not going to criminalize and demonize the adults who actually show up every day because guess what? They're showing up every day. Yeah, they're problematic. Yeah, sometimes they say things that make me like irk and think, oh my God, I can't believe someone said that. But at the end of the day, they are showing up every day. And they're not awful to every kid all the time. They're awful to some kids some of the time. And sometimes I'm awful. So I don't know what to tell you. Like everybody's kind of awful sometimes. And if you start from this place of, okay, well, what are you good at? And how do we make you better at what you're good at? Then it's much easier to help the culture shift than coming from this place of, well, here's all the places where you're deficient. I was just going to add something on the question. I'm going back to the question of racial justice on this point. Because we come at this, we're at the Center for Court Innovation. We do a lot of work in the criminal justice system and the, and the civil justice system. Um, you know, that is the backdrop from which we entered into this work. So there's a lot of questions about interrupting this, the school-to-prison pipeline. But for me personally, I am an attorney, and I was a prosecutor out of, you know, right out of the gate out of law school. And I just thought it was it was interesting that when I was practicing law and I was prosecuting a lot of drug and gun and gang uh, types of crimes. And this is um, this is in our native Canada, Matt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this one, this one's for you me. and me. We don't get to blame America <laughs> on this one. But literally every, so, you know, when you're a prosecutor, most of your time you're making deals with the defense counsel. So it's not a lot about litigating in court. It's a lot about coming up with a deal. And I would say that, you know, every time there was, so mostly there were a lot of black defendants. But every time there was a white defendant, and almost without fail, the defense lawyer would say to me, but if you proceed with this, this is going to ruin my client's life. And I was like, well, I met with you this morning about a different case, and you didn't say that at all. Like, you basically never say that to me when there's a black defendant. So what's going on here? And I felt that when it came to black defendants, there was just this expectation that defendants said, if I gave a good deal, because I was some kind of soft prosecutor, so if I gave you a good deal, that's as good as you're going to get, and you should really take it. And that was the kind of advice that I would see given to black defendants all the time. Oh, take this. This is a really good deal. But if it's a white defendant, there is all kinds of outrage about the harm of the system and the harm of the prosecution and, and all that. And you cut to a decade later, and I'm walking around these public schools. Meanwhile, my child's also in public school, but in a public school that looks really different than the public schools that we're, that we're working in. And this public school that we're working in is filled almost entirely with black children. And it just felt to me that there's this really similar expectation that, like, this is as good as you're going to get. Um, and even if that's, like, an overwhelming, overwhelming mediocrity, even if it's baseline neglect. And it's just um, something that I think connects to what we see in our justice systems. Part of how that plays out and, like, connecting to the racial justice side of it is the immediacy of kind of, like, anticipatory punishment for the kids of, like, them being in school the act of them being in school every day and the fact of it is that like they're just constantly being anticipatorily punished so that when they have the opportunity for like a couch for the lunchroom or a speaker or improving the water fountains because there's so much lead in the water the kids have the idea already that they don't deserve it because they'll mess it up because they've been told so many times that they're the ones who are going to mess it up when that's just like a complete issue of racism and that has like they are children. They deserve water. They deserve a couch in the lunchroom. They deserve literally everything that the kids at the school that I went to on the Upper West Side and the school that your kids go to, Erica, 
it's just assumed that they'll get. And I don't, I mean, I, I get like to your point, like we've talked about this, like how do you restore anything that like they've never had like a clean water fountain in their schools, but that also to Omar's point of like that they just want to maintain order in the schools and they just want the kids to be well behaved because they put restorative justice programs in predominantly black schools because they want the kids to be really well behaved and like better behaved in those schools and they want them to be easier to manage and they're not acknowledging all of the things that they've done that have made it impossible to manage yourself in that daytime because you do not have access to water you do not have access to a bathroom during the times that you want to go to the bathroom there's nowhere for you to just like congregate and sit there's nowhere for the teachers to congregate and sit everyone's telling you that the way that you communicate with your family is not how you're allowed to communicate in school everyone's telling you that like the things that you want to talk about or the music you want to listen to is not okay to be talking about like the way that you're like keeping your hair safe in school is not okay to be doing it just kind of brings all that into like really harsh relief when a kid is like we can't have a couch in the lunchroom because we'll destroy it when like I went to visit my high school that they just built a new building for a few years ago. And it was like literally the nicest place I've ever been to. And they gave tons of couches to those kids. And they give them like this insane theater because they love doing their productions of The Tempest with an actual pool. And that's a public school in New York City. And like they did The Tempest when I was in high school. And they they broke through and flooded the entire like basement, I think, because of the pool. They gave them, they, they just give it again because they're like, oh, your kids are going to mess up instead of being like you get two thousand dollars one time for one couch if you fuck this up you never get that again because we expected you to fuck it up and in without them having to say because you're black kids and that's just like how they assume that potentially a tangent but thinking about like restorative justice as truth telling and storytelling and thinking about these doe higher ups needing to sit in the schools and like listen to the kids they gave them all water bottles. And there aren't, like, every child in the DOE school system was given this, the swell, fancy water bottles. And there aren't water fountains in these schools with clean water. And that's my tangent. And I just... Not a tangent. I just... I think, you know, restorative justice is, like, we need to tell the truth and, like, hear the stories of the kids being, like, we need water, not water bottles. We want to save the environment, but we need water first before we can fill these water bottles. Can I just say you only actually, in some schools, you only got it if you had good behavior. So you only got the water bottle for good behavior that you couldn't use to fill up anywhere. And I'd also like to add to that, um, most African Americans are not lactose tolerant. It is generally understood that if you are black, yeah, (laughs) if you are black, you probably should not be. (laughs) You probably should not be drinking cow's milk. What is the only thing that they offer at lunchtime to this school where ninety nine percent children are black? Chocolate milk and I guess vanilla Vanilla milk. Is it regular milk? (laughs) And then what is the only thing that actually kind of tastes good? Pizza, which is cheese. And so when you think about just like this basic level of who is this school designed for? Who decided that all these black kids need milk at every meal? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like the simplest thing. All right, so you guys are nearing the end of this three-year project now, and you've just taken this trip together as a team down to Montgomery, Alabama, you visited, you know, the work of the Equal Justice Initiative, the the Legacy Museum from uh, enslavement to mass incarceration. 
Um, I don't imagine that it was news, sort of what you guys learned down there, but I'm wondering what the impact was of having this experience together near the end of this restorative justice project in, in the schools that you've been doing. Going into this work, I had the intention of like learning about how to heal intergenerational trauma in communities because it's something that I was informed about like just from my lived experience in, in my hometown. Just recognizing how my family's history in this country is limited. It only goes back like a generation or two, starting with my grandmother who came here from, from El Salvador. And so it gave me a bit more like perspective and understanding around like what that intergenerational trauma looks like but also recognizing that like my struggle is connected to theirs my community struggle is connected to the schools that I work with um, and again I, th I think like speaking to the point that uh, my colleagues had mentioned restorative justice is about unification it is about like connecting to a humanness that is about like a shared struggle and a shared liberation uh, for me the trip it made me reflect on how obviously we've moved from like slavery to mass incarceration and like slavery is like very clear cut. You are enslaved because you are black. And I think the way that they are choosing to capitalize on our bodies now is far more insidious because it's like you are being locked up because you are bad. And you clearly have a choice over being bad in ways that you don't have a choice over being black. I think it just breaks up our community in far different ways. And so for me, the trip cemented that restorative justice is the only way that we're ever going to achieve any racial justice in this country because we need to continue to build our communities and keep our communities strong and keep our faith strong. And I think that's going to be through restorative justice. Um, I think two things that were really powerful to me is one, I had this moment where I went to Chick-fil-A right before I left. And it was the most integrated Chick-fil-A that I'd ever seen. Um, there were black people working there, white people working there, black people eating there, white people eating there. And this is in Montgomery, Alabama, which prior to, I don't know if I will be safe there. And my mom was like, don't get any cars with any strange white men. And I'm like, mom, when have I ever done that? <laughs> um, but it was just like this thing of... Um, you know, you won't be safe in the South. And I actually found it to be the opposite. Um, in my experience, I think New York City is one of the most racist cities I've ever lived in. And I think that not because people will scream nigger at you on the street, but because there's this sort of insidious liberal racism where you're constantly being told, you should just be happy to be here. Aren't we great? Like, oh my God, we are doing so well. And so you're constantly being kind of like told how you should be appreciative of how liberal and advanced this place is, but then internally you know, whoa, this feels bad. I know in my soul that that is not how I feel about like this interaction and the power that you have over me is immense. Whereas in the South, at least specifically in Montgomery, which is a majority black city with a black mayor and doing a lot of really progressive things about documenting the history of racism there, there was an honesty about where they had been and an honesty about where they were trying to go that I don't feel in New York. I didn't feel in Miami. I didn't feel that really in any other city that I've been to. So um, I think that Montgomery and the South in general, they've got something to say. And I'm really grateful that we took that trip together as a team because I think that this team for me has been a really nice 
um, support mat where like I feel like I can kind of fall into my feelings and somebody will catch me. And I think that that might not have been the case if I had gone with a different group of people or if I had gone by myself. I don't know that I would have been able to like feel re-energized by it in the way that I did as opposed to maybe demoralized. <laughs> I think that for the trip for me brought up a lot of things. I think it made me think about where, as a black community, I see us today. And I think it often feels for me that our generation thinks we're going to be liberated through our individual talents and gifts in a way that there isn't this larger community effort and there isn't this investment that in order for people of color to be liberated in this country, it's gonna take us working together. And it's gonna take us believing in something beyond our personal gifts and talents. And what does it mean to use restorative justice to build that kind of community again? What does it mean to use restorative justice to tell the stories of how our ancestors overcame? And that them overcoming had to do with community and had to do with faith and it had to do in believing that it was gonna be something beyond you and that you, weren't, you won't be saved solely by your gifts and talents. And it just made me think a lot about our ability to have these conversations with young people and to model for young people that you can invest in other people even if they don't have the capacity to give you a lot back. So I think a lot of the work we did in schools was just investing and we didn't expect anything back. And if people disappointed us, it was okay. I've got a lot of feels. I don't even know. Um, so I am from St. Louis, Missouri, and I was there when um, the protests were happening for the death of Michael Brown. And I participated in a lot of them. Like, I took a lot of photos and, like, was just there. That was the first time since I was a child that I saw, like, communities come together within the city and it was so much love. Like people, you know, the news, the media just showed, oh, protesters are looting and all of these different things. And it was like, that was that's totally inaccurate. People came together and like, you could go down there in the morning time and never leave because they set up porta potties, they had food, like people donated food, drinks, water, Gatorade, anything that you needed was there for you to like be a part of this moment. And so like, I know that for our generation, we struggle kind of like what Kelsey talked about with having that faith because we hear the stories about what they went through during the civil rights movement and we see that like we do have certain rights and we have certain freedoms but it's like Quayla said and even me said as far as like the ways in which racism show the show itself now it's so insidious because it's like uh I'm gonna smack the shit out of you and I'm gonna hide my hand like you don't know it as opposed to back in the day where it was like they served you racism on a platter like you saw it you know what it was you know that it smelled like shit it tasted like shit but you could see it and now you can't see it I don't know what it's like to like have to be walking in the street and move off of the sidewalk because a white person is coming but at the same time, like Mish said, I know what it feels like to be in a space where I'm not wanted. I know what it feels like to be in a space where I have to explain that I'm not here from a firm, because of affirmative action. I'm here because I'm actually fucking smart and probably I know more than you do. And so it's like, while so many things have changed, 
so many things are still the same. And in Ferguson, I saw the people come together for something that was like so much, so much bigger than us. But like we were missing that spiritual piece so that when that dissipates, when that protest is gone there anymore, people are not necessarily still coming together because like we believe in this thing that is so bigger than us in the ways in which like in the civil rights movement, like they had that. And to know that like they actually lived in a community in ways in which now we may live black people with each other simply because segregation is still alive and real, but we're not actually living in real communities where we are taking care of each other. And essentially like what we're trying to do in these schools is like take care of each other in a ways in which when these kids leave in the communities, and I'm, that's not to say that in none of these communities they're not looking out for each other because that, that would like be false because they are in a lot of ways, but it's not in the way in which like when I was a kid, if I was out in the middle of the street, my neighbor's telling me to get your ass out the street. And if you said something to them, like if you got smart or you did anything, they were going to tell you, I'm, I'm going to tell your grandmother, oh, no, don't do that. It's we like we don't have that anymore. And so to be there in that space, for me, it's like I can visualize a time where like, Black people, actually, we lived in community with each other, and we loved each other, and we took care of each other in a way in which now we have bought into this very white American ideal that, like, individualism, when it's like, we are a very communal people, <laughs> and I need us to get back to that. I want us to get back to that, and I feel like restorative justice is a way for us to get back to that, but it's like... We're so limited because we're in the schools. It's really limited. And, like, what does this look like for us to do this, like, in whole communities to bring us together? And so I guess for me it's, like, Alabama brought up this idea for me that, like, I've always been very much so about kinship. And I feel like those of us who actually really do want that, we're not we – we don't actually live in the communities that raised us because we don't feel it, you know? So, yeah, I like I said, I, I just – feel like RJ is a way in which we can get back to that. So final question to put the cherry on this amazing conversation. As I said, you guys are near the end of this three years of work. Are there some advice you would give? Obviously, somebody can't sort of replicate the work that you guys have been doing, and so much is uh, based on the quality of the people in this room. But... Is there advice that you would have, lessons you've learned that you would share with people who want to try to set up something, you know, uh, at least sharing in, in the spirit of what you guys have been trying to do in these schools? Something I would say to someone entering this work is pay your dues. Coming into communities like the ones that we have, kind of similar to what many of us have been saying now. Kelsey said that uh, we are guests in these houses, and so don't move in there expecting to be the landlord. Don't believe that you have it all figured out for people because you see it from the outside looking in. You have to be in community with people. You have to ask everyone from the disempowered to the empowered to understand what the lay of the land is. One thing I would say is uh, don't come into the work to feel sorry for people. Just get the job done. I mean, I think my biggest takeaway from this whole thing, like agreeing with all of you, is just like the importance of listening. I mean, like, as a white person doing this, like, the importance of listening and just, like, I don't know sh stuff. I mean, the way that they put restorative justice programs in, like, predominantly schools with students of color, like, you got to be thinking about how you can grapple with your own stuff so that you can show up for kids in a way that, like, honors and celebrates daily their identities so that I can be a white person who can talk to kids about, like, what it's like to be black. I'd say to do this work, you got to do it from a place of love. 
And I think that that requires a lot of grace. And Erica mentioned this, no one to tap out. I think you got to acknowledge your limitations and step back and say, like, that's all I can give right now. And, like, acknowledge you might have tried your best, but this just may not be for you. First thing I would say to someone who is interested in doing RJ is to find the log in your own eye. It's obviously a reference to what Jesus says about um, finding the log in your eye before taking out the speck in your neighbors. But I think it works on multiple levels in that as long as you are in community with other people, there is going to be things that you do wrong that you have to own. And if you can't do that piece, then no one's going to want to sit in your circle. They're going to sit in that circle and be like, uh, last week he did this, and now he's talking all this fancy stuff about being in community and being in love, la, la, la. I'm not buying it. The second thing I would say is that healing doesn't take place in isolation. And the wounds that you are trying to heal from can only really begin to breathe when you allow others to see them. And... I think we live in a society that often tells us to hide our damage and to hide our wounds. And obviously it's not safe to do that with everyone. But if you find the people who you can show your wounds to, that is a huge piece in actually healing. And the last thing I have is specifically for my white brothers and sisters. I have always recognized that I have white blood in me. I look in the mirror and I'm a black man and I'm treated like a black man, but I do not look like someone who's West African from the continent right? There is a lightness to my skin. There is a lack of kink to my hair that I can only attribute to a French slave master at some point. And for me, knowing that at some point in my family's history, somebody sold their own kid is really, really paramount to understanding what slavery is about. And so the question that I would have for white people who are interested in doing this work is, how many slaves did your family own? If you can't look into that, then it's going to be very hard to look into the eyes of a kid who's suffering because all you're going to see is your own guilt and your own lack of self-reflection. Maybe your family's new to the country. You came here in the 1900s. You never had slaves. How have you all benefited from the white power structure that exists? That's a question that everyone should be asking themselves. But I think it's a question specifically that if you look in the mirror and you think that you're white and you feel that you're white, you really got to ask yourself a lot. How have I benefited? How have my ancestors benefited? Listen, let me just, I just want to go around the table and just thank each of you for the work that you guys do and for everything that you shared today. Um, so Erica Sasson, we got two Ericas. Well, Erica Sasson, Quela, Erica Wright, Maxine, Xavier, Kelsey, Omar, Mishkael, Bill Harkins on the soundboard over here. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Good job, team. I just also, don't you want to say one more thing, guys? <laughs> one more thing. That was my conversation recorded at the end of February with Erica Wright, Erica Sasson, Kelsey Sayers, Quayla Hugh, Mishkael Setut, Xavier Cornejo, Maxine Getz, and Omar Cyril. For their welcome and for their work, I also want to thank the two other members of that team, Mia Flowers and Carlette Quinto. 
For more information about this episode, including photos of a memorable recording session, click the link in your show notes or visit cordinnovation.org slash newthinking. The music for today's show, including what you're listening to right now, was graciously provided by the artist Zanny London. He is a student at one of the schools in the RJ Project. You can find his uh, excellent work on SoundCloud. Um, he's at Zanny London and on Instagram at ZannyLondon888. This show was edited and produced by me. The tentacular Bill Harkins handled the recording for this mega session. Samia Amin Mia is our dogged and exquisitely talented director of design. Emma Dayton is our whip-smart VP of outreach. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks so much for listening.